This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So we're going to be talking about uh, one of my favorite topics in toxicology. Um, most things that bite and sting I really enjoy. Um, as an avid indoorsman, I don't have to worry about any of these things, so I can just read about them. Um, so we're going to talk about marine envenomations today. And unfortunately, I do not have any financial disclosures. Um, so all the products that we're going to talk about, I don't have any reason to tell you to go get them. Um, so specifically, what are we going to talk about? Objectives. We want to learn about marine creatures that can envenomate. So there is a difference between envenomation and just a mechanical trauma, right? So an envenomation requires a toxin to be present. So the things that we're going to talk about contain a toxin. And we're going to divide it up into the invertebrates, and then we're going to talk about the vertebrates. Um, and with all of these things, we're not going to be talking about sort of the food poisoning aspect of, of marine stuff. So we're not going to be talking about ciguatoxin. We're not going to be talking about scombroid. Um, it's interesting stuff, all things bad sushi related. Um, but they're not really an envenomation, so we're not going to talk about it tonight. Just don't want to get your hopes up. Um, so for each of these invertebrates and the vertebrates, we're going to talk about the clinical presentations and then learn about any potential treatment modalities we may have uh, pre-hospital and then once you get to the hospital. And just try to keep in mind, this is a really, really big topic. There's a lot of things out there that can hurt you, um, which is why I'm terrified of being outside. Um, But we're going to try to give you a general overview of some some big ones. Okay, so we're going to get into the invertebrates. Um, So we're going to talk about the nidaria, or the jellyfish. Uh, We're going to then move into the mollusca, specifically the gastropods and the cephalopods, so cone snails and octopi. And then we're going to talk about, uh, briefly, the sponges and urchins. So, they're very pretty. Uh, Let's get into the nidaria. So that's the phylum. So in phylum nidaria, these are what we just commonly call jellyfish. They're not all true jellyfish, um, but we can't really tell the difference by looking at them with the naked eye, so we're just going to call them jellyfish. There's over 9,000 species known uh, of jellyfish, and about 100 of these are known to cause injury to humans. Um, And the mechanism by which they do this, we've all seen at least a picture of a jellyfish, Uh, they have these tentacles, um, and these tentacles contain something called nematocysts. And within each nematocyst, they have these things called nidi. And these nidi are organelles made of hollow barbed thread, which are then bathed in venom. And then when these nematocysts respond to a pressure change or an osmotic change, they release toxin. So this is sort of what it looks like. Um, There's a schematic of a nematocyst up in the upper left-hand corner there. Um, And this part in the middle here, that's the nidi. So this is the nematocyst before it fires. And this is the nematocyst after it fires. So you have this little barb that comes out that stings. Um, And in the lower right corner here, this is um, what that night eye looks like under an electron microscope. Um, So up close and personal, it really doesn't look like you want to touch it. So within the jellyfish. So we went from phylum to class. So now we're in the class Cubozoa. And again, these are not true jellyfish, but we'll call them jellyfish. Um, And this class is characterized by a cube shape, hence Cubozoa. Um, So their bell is cube-shaped with four corners. And each corner has 1 to 15 tentacles attached to it. And this class is important 
because this class alone produces the most morbidity and mortality of all of the jellyfish. So if you're going to remember one class of jellyfish, it's, the, um, it's a cubozoa. So let's get into some specifics. Uh, within the cubozoa, we have the box jellyfish. So that's a common name for the Chironix fleckeri, um, which is Latin for the assassin's hand. Um, so it's a very welcoming name. Uh, it is extremely toxic. So they're pale blue in color, so when you're actually out uh, diving or swimming, it, they're really, really hard to see in the ocean water. Uh, they're really beautiful when you put a black background and illuminate them, um, but when you're just out swimming, they're, they're going to be hard to notice. Um, the bell does grow to about 25 to 30 centimeters in diameter, uh, so they're not the tiny ones. And in each corner of their, the box of their bell uh, contains about 15 tentacles. So the venom of the box jellyfish. Uh, primarily, these cause cardiovascular effects. So what you're generally going to see, once you get stung by one of these, is a transient, very temporary elevation in blood pressure. And that is very quickly followed by a dramatic drop in blood pressure, or hypotension, and then eventual cardiovascular collapse. And that's how some people die. Uh, they also cause what's called dermatonecrosis, or skin death. Um, hemolysis, which is also... Uh, just uh, breakdown of blood cells. And the toxin does contain myotoxins, which cause muscle damage. All of this wrapped together is bad. It's going to ruin your dive trip. So we have some photos for you. So this is a box jellyfish um, after you encounter one. So the local presentation, the local effects that you see, primarily severe pain. Uh, People describe intractable, excruciating pain after encountering a box jellyfish. And characteristically, they cause a whip-like linear rash, and it's called a frosted ladder. Um, So that's what the rash looks like after uh, coming in contact with a box. Um, So here's another example of the rash. And I would like to point out in this example, this is not a case of mine, but the table that this unfortunate patient is lying on is in a morgue. Um, So they do kill people. Um, But these are good examples of the uh, cutaneous or skin manifestations from encountering a box jellyfish. So more importantly than that is the systemic effect. So how does it affect your whole body? So generally, people will complain of nausea, vomiting, muscle spasms, headache, fevers, chills, kind of the whole gamut of symptoms. Um, And in severe poisoning, people have paralysis, syncope, or loss of consciousness, um, respiratory distress or shortness of breath, hypotension, like we we mentioned, is just very low blood pressure, and dysrhythmia, which is an irregular heartbeat. Um, There are case reports written of patients dying within a few minutes of exposure. Um, So that's why if you go to places where box jellyfish are, you'll generally see a sign like this that says, danger, box jellyfish are here, don't go swimming. Um, They're they're important enough clinically to warn people not to get in the water. So let's say you got stung by one. What do you do? So the treatment here is, despite what you may have heard, um, you deactivate the nematocysts with vinegar. Nothing else. Vinegar. Um, And then once you've doused the the extremity or whatever was stung in vinegar, you can try scraping off the remainder of the nematocysts. Um, And so what a lot of people do in their beach kits, or if you go to a lifeguard tower in certain places, they'll have shaving cream and either plastic cards or you can take a credit card from your wallet, apply the shaving cream to the area, and gently scrape off the nematocysts if there's any still present. So that's what you can do immediately. You're on the beach. You get up on the boat, whatever you can. And that will hopefully prevent further toxicity from ongoing envenomation. 
there is, because this is a species that kills people, an anti-venom to this particular jellyfish. Unfortunately, it's pretty unclear if there's actually any benefit to the, the anti-venom. Um, these uh, injuries occur primarily off the um, uh, eastern coast of Australia, and uh, the studies that have been done weren't the most convincing as far as does it actually save lives. Um, what they think it does is reduce pain. Uh, so if nothing else, if you have intractable pain, there is an antivenom available, um, and so it, it is an option. But I think the bigger issue here is douse the extremity in, in vinegar and try to get the rest of the nematocyst off the arm or leg or wherever you were stung. All right, we're moving on. This is one of my favorite jellyfish. Um, so the Karukia, or the common name is the Irukanji. These are awesome. So they're tiny little guys. Uh, they grow up to about two and a half centimeters in maximal diameter in their bowel. So they're really, really small, which also means they're really, really hard to see in the water. Um, but uh, their toxicity is fascinating. Um, so what essentially happens is that when you get stung by an irukandji, it causes massive catecholamine release. And by catecholamines, I mean your sort of central neurotransmitters. So your norepinephrine, your epinephrine adrenaline, um, and your dopamine. And then what that does, we'll find out. So this is so bad that they actually have a syndrome named after it, just called Irukandji syndrome. Um, and the fascinating part about this is that there are no skin findings. So if you remember, we just talked about the box jellyfish. It gives you this horrible frosted ladder rash. With the Irukandjis, first you can't see them. And when you get stung by them, you can't see where you were stung. Um, so there's no skin findings. But very quickly, you develop severe systemic symptoms, and that's usually within 30 minutes. And these systemic symptoms, because of this catecholamine release, so this flood of adrenaline into your body, you get tachycardia, or rapid heart rate, palpitations, hyperpnea, which is just breathing really quickly, uh, headache, pallor, restlessness, uh, and people describe this feeling of apprehension, this I'm going to die feeling, um, which is great. Uh, then they also have whole body muscle spasms, hypertension, so elevated blood pressure. And then that eventually leads to when you burn out all of your catecholamines, myocardial depression and hypotension, or very low blood pressure. So what do you do if you happen to encounter an irukandji? First off, try to figure out if you actually did, uh, which is going to be hard to do. But if you think you were encountering an irukandji jellyfish, the treatment is the same as a box jellyfish. So vinegar and then remove the nematocysts as much as you can by scraping. It's going to be hard because, like we said, there's no skin findings. So if you don't have any skin findings, you don't really know where to scrape. Um, and classically, these don't cause a lot of immediate pain at the sting site. It's sort of you see a large amount of irukandjis, you are swimming maybe in proximity to them, and then you start feeling ill. The bigger thing with this is get to a hospital. Uh, as soon as you can. No amount of vinegar is going to fix this problem. Uh, so try to get to a hospital. Most people will need intravenous medications to help support their blood pressure and their cardiac function. Um, there is no antidote for this uh, particular envenomation. But the biggest things are when people show up at a hospital, you use IV medications to control the pain, control the muscle spasms, and help the blood pressure. And so this is just to give you a little idea of how big these are. So this is an idea of how big the irukandjis are. So in this little, actually, urine specimen jar, there's uh, a lot of them in there. So they're really, really small. Um, so with all this together, this is what I think. Um, 
I, I'm not as adventurous as Dr. Hoffman, uh, but um, I, I said avid endorsement. So, but here's where you can take a little bit of solace. So this is just a map. Uh, this is, I'm sorry, this is a bit dated. This is 2005 or six. Um, but sites where jellyfish envenomations happen. So if you notice, kind of here in California, there is a paucity of jellyfish envenomations. There's nothing going on over here, so I feel great. Um, most of this is the danger zone. So that is Australia and Southeast Asia. So if you want to plan a dive trip, just know that if you're going to get stung, that's probably where it's going to happen. Um, then there's a lot of stuff in Florida that goes on, but I don't go there either. <laughs> so I feel better about getting in the water now. So we can talk a little bit more about the jellyfish that we might actually encounter here in these United States. So moving on to the class of the hydrozoa. So we talked about the cubozoa. We're moving to the hydrozoa. Again, these are not true jellyfish. Um, but they are characterized by being pelagic, so meaning that they float. And they form colonies, so they float in large groups together. Um, and they're easily recognizable by a classic blue sail. So you might be thinking of a specific jellyfish that you're going to see right here. So this is a Portuguese man o' war, the Vizalia. Um, it's a beautiful jellyfish. I just, again, don't want to get near one. Um, so this is the blue sail that sort of characterizes its appearance. Um, and these can be found uh, in Florida and um, actually as recently as last year because uh, they think of water temperature changes. Uh, there was a few dead ones found on the Jersey Shore. So they're getting as far north as New Jersey. So the Portuguese man o' war, the venom and toxicity. Think of the Portuguese man o' war as sort of the same as a box jellyfish but less severe. So it generally doesn't cause death. Um, but it does cause a lot of pain. Um, and the, the pain and local symptoms that it causes generally isn't as bad as a box jellyfish. Uh, but it causes a lot of distress. You can get a rash, you can have a lot of pain, so you don't really want to encounter one if you can avoid it. Systemically, people complain of headache, muscle spasms, hemolysis or breakdown of blood, uh, uh, blood cells. Uh, there have been cases of renal failure and then eventual shock. Um, so again, like any other dangerous thing, they have signs out on the water, if you're thinking about getting in, that we've seen Portuguese man o' war around here, try to avoid them. Um, so this gentleman, uh, this is actually in, I think, like the Tampa Times or something. Um, he was very proud of his encounter of a Portuguese man o' war. Um, and this is the scars that it left him. Um, so you can see the rash is similar in appearance to what we saw with the box jellyfish. Um, it tends to not be as severe, though. So what do you do about it? This one's different. So don't treat it like a box jellyfish. Don't treat it like an irukandji. So if you're diving around the United States and get stung by what you think is a jellyfish, that's probably a Portuguese man o' war. Um, Seawater. Seawater is the treatment. Do not put vinegar on it. Vinegar has been shown with Portuguese man o' war nematocysts to increase the amount of nematocyst discharge. So don't do it. There also have been studies looking at human urine. And if you apply human urine to a Portuguese man o' war nematocysts, it's pretty unpredictable what's going to happen. Uh, because unlike something like vinegar or unlike something like seawater, it's really hard to predict what the pH of somebody's urine is going to be. And generally before somebody pees on you, you're not going to ask them, what was your diet like today? Um, <laughs> is your urine concentrated? You don't ask them those questions. So in general, we don't know what it's going to do. And depending on the pH of that urine, it might increase the nematocyst discharge. So our general advice from the toxicology side of, of, of this argument is to not pee on your friends. 
Just don't do it. Or, for that matter, don't pee on random people you meet at the beach. Um, so seawater is the treatment here. All right. How do we feel about jellyfish? Good? All right. And the take-home point is don't pee on your friends. Great. All right. We're going to switch gears a little bit. Um, so we're going to talk about the mollusca. Um, so mollusca just means soft. Um, so the things inside the shells, uh, they're, they're always soft. So specifically with the mollusca, we're going to talk about these guys to the left here. These are the cone snails. Um, and to the right here, we're going to talk about uh, one in particular octopus that I, I'm going to warn you now is my favorite toxic creature ever. Um, so just a little teaser. So the gastropods or the cone snails. Um, the cone snails, they're mostly found, sorry, this isn't the best graphic in the world, but in, in the Indo-Pacific waters, so mostly over here. Um, there's approximately 400 species of cone snails that we know about, and 18 of those are known to be venomous. Um, so if you see one, there's a pretty good chance that it might be venomous, so try to stay away from it. So the cone snails. This is a time-lapse photo. So it's this, the same snail uh, attacking the same poor victim, um, so you have this hollow proboscis that comes out, um, and at the end of it, there's a tooth bathed in venom. So it goes, jabs its prey, and then it sort of pulls it into the cone. Um, so that's how it eats. Kind of cool. And here's a, a drawing schematic of what the inside of the cone snail looks like. Um, so if you take away the fleshy part of the cone snail, you have a venom bulb attached to a venom duct, and that comes out to this proboscis with a harpoon on the end of it. So it's a pretty advanced little, little snail, uh, and it's got a pretty good hunting mechanism. So what does it do? The venom, uh, if you've heard my last lecture a couple months ago about uh, toxicology, I've admitted that toxicologists are not creative people. Um, so conotoxin is from a cone snail. So that's the best name we could come up with, and there's, about, uh, there's over 100 different conotoxins that we know about. So... Um, for the medical students in the room, I don't know how far along you are, but this is a neuromuscular junction. So here's a neuron coming down to meet some muscle. Um, and if you look at all these different conotoxins with different names to them, they all act in the same area on the neuromuscular junction. So you may imagine it may have some effects at the neuromuscular junction. And it does. Specifically, it causes paralysis. So in the end, all these conotoxins that we have affect the neuromuscular junction, causing paralysis. So how do people present? The local effects, uh, there's a lot of different case reports out there. They range from anywhere from mild, eh, it wasn't that bad, to excruciating intractable pain. So some amount of pain will generally happen. And the systemic effects, and I put these in bold because these all involve the neuromuscular junction. So weakness, diplopia or double vision, uh, muscle paralysis, and then respiratory failure. And the respiratory failure comes because of paralysis of the diaphragm. Um, and that's how people can die from cone snail envenomations. And there ha have, in fact, been cases reported of deaths. So the treatment. I don't have a lot of good news for you here. Not much to do. Um, supportive care mostly. And by that, I mean if somebody's not breathing, breathe for them. Um, if somebody's in a lot of pain, offers them something for pain control. Um, there are some case reports of hot water improving symptoms, and that's just anecdote uh, as far as case reports go. There hasn't been any data in vitro looking in a lab seeing if there's any amount of change within the neuromuscular junction when applying hot water to things. Um, I think it could just be people are having pain. You apply some hot water, which may be soothing on the skin. We, there's no real scientific basis for why that might help. 
but we don't got much else. So hot water may be worth a shot. And here's a close-up of the uh, harpoon at the end of the proboscis. So here's your proboscis with that tooth bathed in venom, and here's a real close-up shot of what it looks like. So it actually does look kind of like a harpoon. We're moving on to the cephalopods. Remember, this is my favorite, so everybody get excited. So this is a blue-ringed octopus. Um, so I don't even try to pronounce its name, um, but there's, essentially there's the blue-ringed octopus and the greater blue-ringed octopus. Really the only difference is the relative size. The greater, as you imagine, is a little bit bigger than the regular blue-ringed octopus. But they both do the same thing. All right? So they're found mostly in the Indian and Pacific Oceans, anywhere from Japan all the way down through Australia. Um, and again, these are kind of like the Irukandjis. They're really small by comparison to other members of its, uh, of its class, um, but they're really deadly. So the adults here only reach about five to eight inches in length. Um, and they get the name from these blue rings. So they're generally, uh, under normal circumstances, sort of this brownish-beige color. And then when they feel threatened, um, they have these iridescent blue rings that light up and actually pulsate um, throughout their whole body. And that's both uh, a warning uh, to other things around that it feels threatened by, um, and it also, uh, depending on the species, they think it actually is a communication mechanism to actually confuse the predators uh, and allow the octopus time to get away. I personally don't understand why it needs to get away, because it has the coolest poison ever. Um, So the blue-ringed octopus, the thing to take away from this is that it contains tetrodotoxin. And if you haven't heard of tetrodotoxin, it's a really, really potent toxin that causes paralysis. Um, This, coincidentally, is the same toxin that, has anybody heard of fugu? Um, So if you go to expensive Japanese restaurants and you want some blowfish or pufferfish, in the liver and gonads of the pufferfish contains tetrodotoxin. So if you don't have an experienced chef preparing your sushi, you may be poisoned with tetrodotoxin. That, um, people actually reported liking having small amounts of tetrodotoxin because it causes sort of what's called perioral um, paresthesia, so a little numbness and tingling around your lips, and that was thought to be exciting. Again, terrifying. Um, But that toxin uh, is the same toxin that's in the blue-ringed octopus. The difference is the blue-ringed octopus is intentionally trying to bite you and envenomate you um, with the purpose of killing you. Um, So this little guy that's five to eight uh, centimeters long, um, can bite you and inject in tetrodotoxin. And like all other animals, there's a lot of other stuff that's in its, uh, in its venom, uh, but really the only thing that matters in this case is the tetrodotoxin, because that's the thing that's going to kill you. So the clinical presentation, if you are unfortunate enough to get bit by a blue-ringed octopus, you'll generally have one to two puncture wounds at the bite site, Um, People describe usually only minor discomfort and some redness and swelling around where they were bitten. But then that's very quickly, rapidly followed by the onset of paralysis. And this happens in about 10 minutes. Um, If you're able to get medical care within that time frame before you stop breathing, you have a pretty good chance of living. So with supportive care and uh, mechanical ventilation, recovery usually happens within one to two days. Um, so it does put you down for a couple days of being totally paralyzed. And by the way, when you're paralyzed, you are totally awake and know everything that's going on around you. You just can't do a thing about it. Um, so it's a really fascinating toxin. Um, <laughs> so what we do for this, and I shouldn't say what we do because I've never personally seen one uh, come into my care, um, but what you would do is get them to a hospital as soon as you can. There is no antidote available for tetrodotoxin. 
Um, and the treatment, again, is supportive. So this is what we do in the emergency room for anybody who can't breathe. This is a plastic endotracheal tube, and we insert that endotracheal tube through the trachea down to the lungs. Um, and we can hook you up to a ventilator and just let you ride it out. And when the toxin wears off, we can take the tube out, and hopefully you're breathing on your own again. But that's all we really have to do to, to treat it. Um, there is an interesting case report in, in the toxicology literature of a gentleman who liked to collect um, exotic animals, specifically marine creatures, um, and he wanted to take a photo of his octopus on his shoulder like a parrot. Um, and so he put the octopus on his shoulder. It promptly bit him. Um, he died. Uh, but it got written up in the, ca in the case literature, so we, a lot of the data that we know about tetrodotoxin actually comes from that one individual. Um, so if you have pets, uh, know the limitations of photo ops. <laughs> All right. We've, we've covered uh, the, the octopi. So now we're going to move into um, a class generally more commonly seen if you're out um, snorkeling or scuba diving. So the porifera or the uh, echinodermata. These are the sponges and the sea urchins. So if, if you've ever been out in the water, you've probably encountered this, or, or thousands of the species. So on the left here, we have our fire sponge. And by the name, you probably don't want to get in touch with it. Um, and here's just a classic example of an urchin. Um, and you can see how they might envenomate you just by looking at them. So with the sponges, its mechanism is pretty straightforward. The sponge has an elastic uh, skeleton, and it's made of spicules of silicon dioxide and calcium carbamate. Um, so with that, if you come in contact with it, you get this pruritic dermatitis, so a very itchy skin rash, and an edema or swelling around the area, local joint swelling, and people can eventually develop vesicles or um, little raised uh, bubbles full of fluid. So here's kind of a hand that's been exposed to a sponge, and these are sort of the uh, vesicular formations that happen when you brush up against one when you're diving. So it's important to remember that even the dried sponges, um, so the dried sponges themselves are non-toxic. However, with re-wetting, that same sponge that was dried and non-toxic, if it gets wet again, can be toxic, and that effect can last for years. Um, if you do come in contact with one, rest assured, the skin findings generally will resolve within three to seven days. Um, then the treatment is also pretty straightforward. You want to remove those spicules, right? So things that have been shown to be effective or any sort of adhesive tape. Um, and again, uh, a credit card in your wallet comes in handy for a lot of things. So credit card scraping also works for this. Other things that have been studied, looking at sponge uh, exposures, antihistamines like you know, things like diphenhydramine or Benadryl um, and uh, steroids, they don't really work. So you just have to try to get the spicules off the skin the best you can um, and wait three to seven days, and it will get better. So sea urchins. And by the way, when I was preparing this lecture, if you Google sea urchins, there are just so many photos of uni, and you get really hungry. Um, but for this, uh, we're going to talk about why you don't want to actually handle them yourself. Um, so how they work, much like the sponges, they're covered in spines, um, and those spines are the things that actually get to you. So the venom contains a lot of different things. Like, like we were saying before, all animal toxins contain a lot of different proteins that can be harmful. But what ends up happening, it's usually a local reaction. So you get these spines that get embedded into your skin, and that causes pain, burning, swelling, redness. Um, and you can take these photos like this, and you have all the urchin spines sticking out of your hand. So what is the treatment for it? 
remove the spines. Um, so what they generally recommend for this is try to remove the spines, um, submerge the air affected area in hot water, and then in the hospital setting, what we do is we'll get an x-ray of that extremity to make sure there's not any retained spines in the skin. Because if we leave any of those behind, they will cause an infection. Um, so we have to go digging around to make sure we get it all out. All right. We've gone through the invertebrates. We're moving to the vertebrates. So with this, we're going to talk about the um, uh, chordata. So the stingrays, and we're going to specifically talk about lionfish and stonefish. And then very quickly, we'll, we'll cover sea snakes. So stingrays, um, they do have uh, venom, uh, but most of what they're doing is just the physical trauma. Um, so uh, the, the venom isn't quite as important. Rarely with systemic uh, envenomations, you have things like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, vertigo, headache, a lot of different symptoms from, from being exposed to them. But the overwhelming majority of bad outcomes that we see with encounters with stingrays is just from the physical trauma. So its mechanism, they have a tapered, bilaterally retroserrated barb. So here's an idea of what that looks like. So this is retroserrated barbs, so it's on both sides. And then what happens is if you step on them, they have a reflex tail whip when they're stepped on. Um, and it's just a defensive mechanism. And that causes a penetrating wound from this barb that's on their tail. There have been deaths reported from chest and abdominal uh, puncture wounds from the stingray barb. But in general, you know, if you go to major tourist areas, stingrays are very, for the most part, docile creatures. Um, but it is when you accidentally step on one and they have this reflex whip of their tail, that's when most people get envenomated. This is an interesting case report of uh, one person who actually lived. So this is a stingray barb to the chest um, this is a short view ultrasound image of the left ventricle of your heart, and that shiny thing coming through is the stingray barb. Um, so the barb directly went into the person's heart, and here's just a, a model mock-up of what the heart looked like in the operating room. Um, so there's the heart, and that is the stingray barb going all the way through. Um, that person managed to survive this injury, uh, which is incredible. One person not as lucky, as you may remember, um, so Mr. Steve Irwin, he passed away in 2006. Um, and the only really accounts that we have, because the family didn't, uh, for many reasons, didn't want to release the autopsy reports and, and so forth, um, was his friend who was on the boat with him watching him dive. Um, and the report was he was struck hundreds of times by a very large stingray while he was diving in the Great Barrier Reef. He was actually filming for not even his show. Um, but uh, it went through his heart, and he passed away from a, a stingray. Uh, barb. So that's the major mechanism for stingrays. So just be careful around them. For, like I said, for the most part, they're very safe to be around, but it's that accidental stepping on them that can lead to problems. All right, moving to lionfish. Um, these are beautiful but kind of annoying. Um, so the Petora species, um, they are, lead to the most common spiny fish envenomation in North America. And part of the problem is that a lot of people bought them for domestic use and to add to their fish tanks, but um, they tend to eat other fish that are in your fish tank, so then people would get upset and they release them into the ocean. Um, and so now, without many other natural predators, especially around the Florida coast, um, the lionfish have taken over a lot of the coastline, leading to a lot of envenomations. 
So this is what they look like in the water. Um, and this is the part you want to avoid, this, these dorsal spines back here. So the dorsal fin spines are the things where most people will encounter and envenomate themselves. And uh, I did my fellowship in New York City where not a lot of people are in the water um, scuba diving, but a lot of people had these as pets at home. And it's when you reach into the tank to try to clean or do whatever you're doing with your fish tank, that's when you get stung by these. So the mechanism and the venom, um, so you, you poke yourself with those dorsal fine, fin spines. Um, and the venom contains a mixture of these inflammatory mediators and essentially it just results in severe burning-type pain and swelling. And this happens within seconds of encountering it. Rarely, there have been reports of people with abdominal pain, chest pain, low blood pressure, and syncope are passing out. Uh, but more commonly, what we're going to see is an isolated hand encountering the dorsal fin spines. And so you can see, compared to this person's right hand, the left is markedly swollen. And you can see these vesicles starting to form over the thumb. And here's just another example. Um, normal hand, swollen red hand. Um, and also this picture reminds us of other things to do when you have hand swelling or extremity swelling. Take off the ring. Um, it will get stuck, and then we have to call in the fire brigade to cut it off. It's, it's a mess. So um, always take off any constricting mechanisms around. So what do you do about it? So there's a lot of things. Treatment involves, as so you can give analgesics or pain relief, you know, whatever people need to control their pain. Wound care, so that's really important. So appropriately care for the wound, including update the tetanus shot. Um, and what we would do in the hospital is give prophylactic antibiotics for this type of, uh, of wound. What really works for this is hot water immersion. And what they recommend is somewhere between 110 and 115 degrees. And you soak the affected extremity for at least a half an hour. Um, and that usually provides almost immediate pain relief. Um, and again, this is a situation where we would get x-rays to make sure there's no embedded spines in the hand or the foot. They do sell, if you Google it online, these like uh, lionfish recovery kits, which essentially are a Band-Aid and a pair of gloves. So um, I don't think you really need it. Uh, get a bucket, uh, fill it with some hot water, and put the extremity in. So moving on to another fish. Um, he is not attractive, but the stonefish uh, has a remarkable toxin that we should talk about. So the stonefish gets its name because it sits on the bottom uh, of the sand, and it sort of blends in with the rocks around it. Um, so it's really hard to notice. And so because of that, it's really easy to get envenomated by it. What it contains is a bunch of different toxins. So again, we're not very creative people, so there's stone use toxin um, for the stonefish. Either way, there's a lot of different stuff in there that causes problems. But it's important to remember that these toxins are stable in these dorsal fin uh, spines for 24 to 48 hours after the death of the fish. So even if you see one dead up on the beach, don't get close to it or don't touch it with your bare hands because the spines can still envenomate you. So what does it do? So here's the spine. So that's what goes into an unsuspecting victim's foot. Um, and for the local reaction, it, people describe severe pain and swelling. Okay, fair enough. Then for the systemic features, so how people are presenting when it gets real bad, is headache, seizures. People have had paralysis and respiratory distress and cardiovascular collapse from this. Um, and here's an example of a foot that ran into a stonefish. And so you can see these kind of blood-filled bullae on, on the feet. Um, and it's pretty swollen. Um, so that's more commonly what we'll see, the local effects. So the treatment for stonefish. 
It's pretty much the same as a lionfish, but because this is one of those things that can kill you, there is an antivenom for it. Um, in addition, so we do the same things we do, you know, analgesics, so take care of the person's pain, uh, wound care, so update the tetanus shot, prophylactic antibiotics. Hot water immersion also works for the stonefish. So lionfish and stonefish, dunk them in hot water. Um, and again, we'll get x-rays to remove the spine. And then this is just another reminder to me that I feel more safe in my life. Um, here is the region where the stonefish are predominantly living. Um, so not over here. <laughs> So the stonefish antivenom, um, it's equine-derived, so it's horse-derived. It's a fab fragment, and that just means that they cut up the protein enough where it doesn't cause much of, of an immune reaction when we get it into humans. So the indications for it, uh, systemic toxicity or really just uncontrolled severe pain. It does have some adverse effects associated with the antivenom, including serum sickness and anaphylaxis, or sort of the, the worst kind of allergic reaction you can get. And it's important to remember that we have it, but it's still not FDA-approved. And that's simply because we don't have enough people to study. There's not that many people getting super sick from stonefish where we can have a large, randomized, controlled study looking at the efficacy of the, the, the stonefish antivenom. But just know that it's out there. All right, last one. I'm going to talk about sea snakes. So... For the sea snakes, there are 52 known species. Every single one of them is venomous. Um, fortunately, there are none in the Atlantic, so those of you going to the East Coast, you're okay. They mostly reside in Southeast Asia, except the yellow-bellied sea snake, and that's what we see right here. Um, very clever name. It has a yellow belly. Um, it, this one is found along the California coast, so this is one you might actually encounter. So how to think about sea snakes? These are their relatives. Um, so Uncle Cobra uh, and Crate. So as you wouldn't want to get very close to a cobra or crate, you shouldn't want to get close to a sea snake. They are equally as venomous. So like a cobra and like a crate, the venom from a sea snake is primarily neurotoxic, so leading to paralysis. But it also contains myotoxins, so muscle poisons, uh, hemolytic, so it breaks down blood uh, cells, and nephrotoxic, so it attacks your kidneys. So with that in mind, the things that you have, um, generally people describe a very minor local reaction. You know, they'll describe a little irritation on their ankle, um, but not a lot of pain from where they were bitten. But that quickly develops then into an ascending paralysis, so it usually starts at the feet and legs, and then goes up, and then people can't breathe. Um, eventually people will describe aphonia, so inability to speak, um, nausea, vomiting, um, and it also causes fasciculations or muscle twitching. People have reported seizures, respiratory failure. Um, and the thing to remember with this is that symptom onset can be delayed six to eight hours. So what we generally recommend is if you are in the vicinity of a sea snake and you think you may have been bitten, try to get away from the water and try to get to a hospital as soon as you can and at least be observed in a hospital just in case any of this stuff happens. The hallmark from sea snake envenomation is painful muscular rigidity and then muscle breakdown. And that's a condition we call rhabdomyolysis. And because of the rhabdomyolysis, it causes something called myoglobinuria, which just means in your urine, you're putting out myoglobin as a product of that muscle breakdown. And this is what urine looks like when it has a bunch of myoglobin in it. Um, so it's kind of this dark brown Coca-Cola colored um, urine. That is a bad sign. So what do we do about it? 
generally supportive care. And a lot of things with sea snakes are very similar to what we do with land snakes. So we try to immobilize the limb. Um, we'll do what's called lymphatic constriction. So we don't like things like tourniquets or a lot of high-pressure systems on any extremity that was exposed. Think of you know, a, um, a tube sock. Um, and that amount of pressure that it will just indent your skin just so slightly, that's the amount of compression that we want on the extremity. Um, so in the field, if you're out there with, you know, diving with friends, that's the type of pressure we want on the extremity. So immobilize it, put this lymphatic constrictor on, and again, once you get to a hospital, there is an antivenom for sea snakes because, again, they can kill you. It is, again, horse-derived. Again, not FDA-approved because there's just not enough patients to study this well. And it re- the, comp- even compared to this, the stonefish one, this one's really not well-studied. But we do think it does um, reduce your uh, likelihood of going into fulminant renal or kidney failure. So I think that's all the specific examples I have for you. So what have we learned? So to summarize, for the jellyfish, for the box jellyfish, apply vinegar, scrape off those nematocysts. For the irukandji, take home from that is that there's no skin findings, and the treatment is going to be largely the same as a box jellyfish. For the Portuguese man-o'-war, seawater, no vinegar, don't urinate on it. Cone snails can cause severe pain and paralysis. Hot water, plus or minus, may help. For the blue-ringed octopus, my favorite, um, tetrodotoxin. That's the thing you need to be afraid of. It causes paralysis and then eventually death. Supportive care is really the only thing we have to help you. Sponges and urchins, it's mostly a local reaction. Just try to remove the spicules the best you can. For stingrays, this is mostly mechanical trauma from that tail barb. Um, Can cause death if that penetrating wound is to the chest or to the abdomen. The lionfish and the stonefish, submerge whatever extremity is exposed in hot water, and that provides generally immediate pain relief. The stonefish does have an antivenom for severe cases. And then sea snakes, the hallmark for that, uh, muscle breakdown and myoglobinuria. There is an antidote available, but it's not FDA approved. And I think we have a few minutes for questions. Question is, um, while you're, if you were to be unfortunate enough to be envenomated by any of these things, is there anything else that you can do pre-hospital um, that could at least delay uh, the, the envenomation effects. Um, and really outside of what, what we had discussed today of, you know, depending on the species, either vinegar or hot water or seawater, um, there really isn't a lot else to do. There, I, granted, this is one of those things that isn't rigorously studied as far as, um, you know, we have some animal studies where we envenomate a rabbit and then hold its leg above its head and see what happens. Um, but I don't think we can really take away much data from that. So the question is, um, the, the general thought is that most sea snakes, their mouths are so, so small that they rarely will cause human toxicity. Um, and that is correct. Um, the number of cases of sea snake envenomations is exquisitely small. Um, it does not happen commonly, uh, but it can happen. We have enough case reports where we know it's a possibility. Uh, so with that, I, I think the only thing we can do is just tell people that it's possible, although unlikely, that you might get bitten by a sea snake.
Sure. So the, the question is, can you reduce your risk uh, from envenomation by wearing uh, protective clothing like a, a wetsuit? Um, and again, I would say that we don't have any data to support that, but I think just common sense would, would tell us that if you can create a barrier between your skin and the mouth of something else, um, the chance of it being able to envenomate you would be lower. Um, but I, again, I don't have any data to back up that claim. Yeah. So the question is, what's the treatment for a, a local stingray attack? Um, again, it's mostly just the mechanical trauma. So it's getting that barb removed is the big thing. And like we had mentioned, um, the, the barb shape is that bilateral retro serrated barb. So unfortunately, it's one of those things where as it goes into the skin, because of that retro serrated blade, if you pull it out directly, it will cause more damage coming out. Um, so frequently, these have to be surgically excised um, very carefully under anesthesia. Um, so the best thing to do is, if it's embedded into the body of somebody, is get them as quickly as you can to the hospital. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.